For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And we start this week's readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter, to which, as always, we encourage you to subscribe, with the Canadian government's weak-kneed and weak-minded decision to bust sanctions on Russia and ship newly repaired Nord Stream turbines back to Russia's state Gazprom energy firm. It seems baffling, since we've famously been virtue-signaling our support for Ukraine, even if our practical military help has been limited. But in fact, the decision to release this vital equipment, which drives a natural gas pipeline compressor station, and was being serviced in Canada by a subsidiary of the German engineering giant Siemens, is an instructive illustration of how one weakness predictably leads to another. If Germans hadn't foolishly made themselves dependent, first on Soviet and then on Russian gas, because it seemed sophisticated and worldly to lack the backbone to stand up to tyranny, they wouldn't need Russian gas, so they wouldn't need Nord Stream. And if our governments hadn't found a way to strangle every pipeline and other energy project whose throat they could reach, we'd already be shipping our own natural gas to Europe instead of sending back equipment for the Russian energy network. Remember, when Donald Trump pointedly warned Germany about dependence on Russian gas in a 2018 UN speech, German delegates openly laughed in his face. Not funny now, is it? Nor is it funny that Canada's natural resources minister, piled moral on geopolitical weakness by claiming he had no choice because, quote, absent a necessary supply of natural gas, the German economy will suffer very significant hardship, end quote. Yeah, whereas present an unnecessary supply of Russian invaders, the Ukrainian economy is literally being blown to bits. The minister then made it worse by believing that helping Russia sell natural gas to our allies would support, quote, Europe's ability to access reliable and affordable energy as they continue to transition away from Russian oil and gas, end quote. And then, someone who's meant to be Canada's foreign affairs minister added fatuously, quote, Canada is unwavering in its support of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Canada will not relent in pressuring the Russian regime, end quote. But we did just waver and relent, and the Kremlin certainly knows it. Plus side, we helped create this new G7 Climate Club. Ooh, are all the cool kids joining? Can you get decals? Uh, sorry, that one probably dated us. Nowadays it's apps, hashtags, and emojis. But in an era that sends words to do the work of deeds, to borrow a phrase from Calvin Coolidge who thought we were done with that stuff a century ago, it's typical that the same group of governments who flubbed their own climate targets for decades while doing appalling damage to their economies and societies along the way have now pompously constituted themselves into a glorious international group whose members will meet their own climate targets and help others do the same using their, um, their, um, hey, this is our club. You skeptics, get out. Speaking of people whose words are asked vainly to do the job of deeds, the Trudeau cabinet also claims to believe that reducing carbon emissions is as urgent as it is essential, yet they're forever flying about to promote their own pet causes and political fortunes in petty ways. The Prime Minister himself apparently has far and away the largest personal carbon footprint of anyone in Canada, a veritable Bigfoot of GHGs. But, since a fish emits from the head, in the newsletter we surveyed less than one week's superfluous air travel by Canadian cabinet ministers and found trips from Mississauga to Regina, from the Estrie to Calgary, from St. John's to Hamilton, from Milton to Edmonton, and much, much more. Including Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland zooming off to Bali for the G20 Finance Ministers and Central Bank Governors meeting, just three days after her colleague the Foreign Affairs Minister jetted back from, again, Bali for, quote, successful participation in G20 foreign ministers meeting in Indonesia, end quote. They always say successful, but 
Nobody, including her, can remember a week later whatever it is they supposedly accomplished. To top it off, Uber Green Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault even flew down to Washington and back, though delayed by the airport chaos his government can't fix, unlike the world's weather, for a two-day visit where he, quote, emphasized the strength and importance of the relationship between both countries to work collaboratively to address plastic pollution, fight climate change, including through cleaner transportation and electricity, as well as work together to support developing countries to combat climate change through international climate finance. Hasn't he heard of Zoom? Or was he worried they'd disconnect in the face of such blather? We won't try your patience with further examples in this video, but if they had something of substance to discuss, they could have emailed a PDF. And it's as absurd to hector us about electric vehicles and carbon footprints through the haze of revving airplane engines as to fulminate against our gluttony while staggering from the banquet table to collapse groaning on the couch. Here I'm going to interrupt myself without even banjo music, to tell you a fundraising pitch is coming, to thank everybody who's already supporting the channel, and to ask the rest of you to step up with a small pledge or a big one, monthly if you can manage it, by clicking here, so that we can continue to produce the videos and the newsletter. There's a lot that goes into it, researching, writing the scripts, video production, and we'd also like to expand our presence on other social networks. That is a big part of getting the message out these days. And by the way, for those of you who've been wondering, yes, we are on Rumble as Climate DN. But there's a lot of other places we need to be. That takes time and effort, and time and effort take money. So again, click here. $3 a month, $5 a month, more if you can afford it, and we'll keep bringing sanity to the climate debate across platforms. And now, back to the show. In another newsletter item, we noted that people generally like to claim that the people are on their side. There are exceptions, like the Athenian statesman Phocion, who Plutarch recounts once reacted to audience applause by turning to ask his friends, have I inadvertently said something foolish? But he died in 318 BC, and even back then he was regarded as an outlier. When it comes to climate, it's typical to say the populace has spoken and wants action. But, as we recently noted, polls don't capture the intensity or even the sincerity of views. When Joe Manchin apparently brought down Joe Biden's climate bill, the New York Times Climate Forward insisted that the public disapproved, saying, quote, Republicans have been solidly against climate legislation, never mind that a majority of Americans, in poll after poll, want the government to do more to address the risks, end quote. Well, then, the Democrats should triumph in the midterms, right? Unless the popular uprisings in the Netherlands and Sri Lanka are a more reliable measure of what people really think than the things they feel compelled to say to pollsters. Another distinctly unhelpful rhetorical device in public discussion is insisting that some important debate is over, that your side has won, and you don't even have to say why anymore. Of course, there are areas where it's true, like the desirability of slavery as a social institution or reviving the Holy Roman Empire. But it's unhelpful when news outlets and others simply assert that the ravages of climate are upon us without bothering to present data or arguments. Like the burden of purple prose, as in, quote, millions of people on three continents baked in heat waves supercharged by climate change this week, end quote. Baked. Supercharged. And the Washington Post tugged at the heartstrings with some woman in Senegal whose home got washed away, then asserted as uncontroversial that, quote, while cities across the world must contend with the growing tide as the earth heats up, developing nations face the greatest risk. Rates of sea level rise have more than doubled in recent decades, scientists say, as reliance on fossil fuels hastened the melting of ice sheets and glaciers, end quote. 
Actually, as our CN by the Sea Tourist demonstrated, an astounding number of places around the world are contending with extremely slow sea level rise, maybe a meter every 400 years, and in quite a few places, the oceans are actually falling. As for Senegal, according to the World Bank, the rate there is about 3 millimeters a year, so just 333 years to hit 1 meter. Daunted, the Post says, quote, researchers in Senegal found that 80% of the city, its former capital of Saint-Louis, could be underwater by 2080, erasing this World Heritage Site celebrated for its architecture while uprooting 150,000 people, end quote. But if that's true, then 80% of St. Louis must currently be less than 18 centimeters above sea level. So you better hope they don't have waves or tides there. Blast! They do, with more than a meter between high and low tide. Oh, the humanity. Elsewhere, the New York Times tries to drum up sympathy for the French, possibly in vain, by describing a harrowing shortage of Dijon mustard and blaming, you know what, Quote, a perfect storm of climate change, a European war, COVID supply problems, and rising costs have left French producers short of the brown seeds that make their mustard mustard, end quote. As we discussed in our video on public conditioning around floods, much of this talk is purely reflexive, like the man who crosses himself when nervous without making any effort to reform his sinful ways. Thus, a press release about a minister flying across Canada to hand out money will say something like, quote, As farmers and Canadians face the brunt of the impacts of climate change, these new living labs will help to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and strengthen the climate resiliency of our nation's food systems, end quote. Face the brunt, no less. That's not exactly grammatical, is it? But mostly they've stopped thinking about their words and their own ideas, as well as other people's, because something's closed. But it's their minds not the debate. Another odd thing about the climate debate, or lack of it, among many such things, is that very often the scale of a proposed response seems ludicrously out of proportion to the purported problem. Even the hoo-ha about American climate plans seems excessive, since the United States is doing fairly well by world standards when it comes to reducing emissions, while other nations are blasting off, especially China and India. So, in the newsletter, we give a hat tip to Climate Home News, which is often a target for our jibes and with good reason, for a story that starts, quote, When it comes to the world's two biggest emitters, we are caught between a secret of autocracy and an oversharing corrupted democracy, end quote. Because if you really care about emissions, then, as the late Ralph Klein famously said about budgeting, you have to hunt where the ducks are. Then, for a change of pace, we note in the newsletter that it doesn't snow like it used to when we were kids. Nope. Sure doesn't. Instead, on average, it snows more, at least annually for the world as a whole. NASA has posted a detailed data set online that measures global snow coverage over the entire surface of the planet from 1980 to 2020. And you can download and process it yourself, but in case that's not your cup of tea, a computer whiz blogger named Zoe Finn has done it for you and posted the code for the keeners to check. Here's what the global record looks like. Since 1980, the total snow coverage around the world has gone up by 3.3%, but the trend is slightly downward in the northern hemisphere and upward in the southern. Mind you, another source said winter was snowier in the northern hemisphere than it used to be, a discrepancy probably caused by spring snow coverage declining while fall and winter coverage has increased. Bottom line here? Climate is complicated, but les neiges d'antan sont les neiges d'aujourd'hui. Now, even if you like snow, it's the wrong time of year to go to Antarctica, though. If there is a right time, it's not, as that phrase is normally used. Besides, we've heard that the South Pole is melting in a terrifying manner and threatening to drown us all. 
But our CDN by the sea visit to the boringly named Argentine Islands down that away suggests that in fact Antarctica isn't even submerging itself, let alone the rest of us. At this rate, just over one millimeter per year, it will take about 980 years to rise one meter. Uh, but it could take longer because, as you can see, the increase happened before 1990 and it's stalled ever since. Now, here's a much better name, Southern Elephant Seals of Maritime Antarctica. That'd make a good name for a band. And it comes to us from CO2Science.org in the form of a study of apex predator Marunga leonina on two beaches in Antarctica. But you won't need sunscreen. It seems their population is increasing, which is good news unless you're a penguin, in which case you're not watching our videos. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I say whack, whack, whack to climate alarmism.